Thank you, Derek and the team. Let's give them a round of thanks for what they do for us. And though it seems like their job is very easy, I think if you watch the preparations that they go for in order to lead us in worship, uh, it's actually an amazing amount of work. So thank you for those of you who invest so much time in this. My name is Jerry. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, as you know, Pastor Steph, our lead pastor, is on sabbatical. And uh, his, this is a time of rejuvenation for him. But we're going to continue on studying God's Word and being a light in the community. And that's our goal. And so that as he comes back from his sabbatical in the new year, and our own hearts hopefully are also in tune with God, that we will sense what God's direction is. And your board is working very hard these days in listening to God. And they're taking time to pray and asking God, what is it that you want us to do? So this morning, we're beginning a new teaching series called Mine. And it's all about the things that we think are ours. What do we do with the things that are ours? And how do we live our life as good stewards of what God gives us? Now, this series is going to be a little bit different because we've got a number of guest speakers also over the next few months. And so this series is going to fit in all those gaps where we don't have a visiting speaker. So you're going to be able to keep up with that online if you miss a Sunday and be able to pick it up. So I'm going to be speaking on it some, and Pastor Kelly is also going to be speaking on that. And, uh, but I hope that it's a series that helps you process that question, what do I do with what is mine? So before we get into this, let's just stop for a moment and think about what it is that we as a church are really about. What is this church's goal? What are we trying to do? Now, some of you might say, well, we go to church. That's what we do. Or you might say, well, we also try to be a light to our community and share Jesus with others. And those things are all true. That's what we do. But one of the greatest things that's both in our documents, it says this, that we are about making disciples. Hey, Siri. What is the definition of a disciple? Disciple means a personal follower of Christ during his life, especially one of the 12 apostles. There, you have the authority. And many of us, when we think of a disciple, we think of, well, disciples, that was back in the days of Jesus. You know, those 12 guys, those apostles, that, those were disciples. But really, what is a disciple? First, a disciple is a follower of Jesus. And when we talk about being a disciple, that we're trying to create disciples, we're trying to distinguish between someone who just goes to church or someone who has prayed a prayer and asked Jesus into their heart. 
we're trying to distinguish between just the beginnings of faith and someone who is actually taking steps with their faith. So someone who is a follower of Jesus. And so our goal is that all of you will not just be religious or that you will just come to church, but that you will see yourself as a follower of Jesus. So the second thing that we are looking for also is that people are forgiven by Jesus. So that you just don't blend in with the crowd, but this is something that you take very personal. That there has been a point in your life when you come to Jesus and you say, I am in need of you, I need your forgiveness, and I need your washing and cleansing in my life. So that's also what comes into my mind when we think about a disciple. We're also thinking of someone who is embodied by Jesus, which means that when you give your heart to Christ, when you come to that point and you say, I cannot do it on my own, I need Jesus, is that when you give your life to him, we use this term sometimes that we invite Jesus into our life. That means he actually embodies us. He takes up residence in your life. Something that's a little bit unusual in today's thinking is that the God of the universe, our creator, can actually live inside of me. His spirit is in me, stirring me. And he lives there. And in some sense, the scriptures say that his presence in your life is a down payment and an assurance that one day he will come for you and you will be with him forever. We also think that a disciple is someone who is transformed by Jesus. So with Jesus coming into your life, he is not satisfied leaving things the way they are. He's coming in to make it better. It's kind of like when you buy a home, maybe it's a little bit run down, that home needs somebody, and you move in, you're not satisfied to just leave the grass long, the fence falling down, the roof unrepaired. You're going to make it better. And that's what God's purpose is. When Jesus comes into your life, his plan is to transform you from what you were to what you were always meant to be. Now, in some ways, and and we use a real theological word for this, we use the word sanctification. There's part of this that Jesus does, and there's part of this that he invites you to partner with. So there's some of it that is done the moment you give your heart to Jesus, but there is some of it that goes, that's an ongoing process of growing in Jesus. But when we think of a disciple, that's what we mean. Someone who has been changed by Jesus and whose desire is to keep being changed by Jesus. And then the last thing when we think about a disciple is someone who is animated by Jesus. Which means that Jesus just does not live in you. That he doesn't just change you. But his goal is to live his life through you so that you become his hands you become his feet you become his presence wherever you are as that saying goes you might be the only Jesus someone will ever see 
So in that sense, we become his ambassadors, his representatives. And it's not just Jesus trying to change the world, but it's Jesus, through his changing power in me, changing the world. So that a disciple is very much engaged with, we use a term, winning the world. That doesn't mean we're trying to conquer the world, but we're trying to bring the message of Christ to the world. So this is what we are about as a church. We are about making disciples. And being a disciple involves all of these things. And so there are certain things that a disciple needs to know and a cer certain things that a disciple needs to do and certain things that a disciple needs to be. And one of those things is wrestling through what do I do with what is mine? Is it really mine? And what do I do with all this stuff? I have money. I have time. I have energy. I have gifts and talents. I have things in my life. What do I do with all of that so that I am a true disciple? Now, when Renee and I were younger and our children were all at home and uh, we have four children and they're all very close in age. Uh, at the time uh, we had our children, our oldest one was not yet five when our youngest was born. So we had four children, four and under, which seemed like a good idea at the time. You, you, you know, we had this concept. Well, they'll all grow up together. They'll all be friends. Things like that. We, we were unaware of just how much energy that would take. And, uh, but you know what? God used that to transform us. And that was what he was doing. So we stumbled across this great idea. I think it was actually Renee who stumbled across this idea. We've always loved road trips, and if you live in rural areas, you better like road trips because it takes a long time to get anywhere. Rene is from Calgary area. I was born in the Toronto area, so it was always road trips to go visit family. So this was Renee's idea. She thought it would make road trips go so much better if we bought each of the kids a backpack and fill it with lots of good things for along the way. So, Renee would fill the backpack with some little games and books and some activity books that you could draw in or, you know, those ones that you'd, you take a little pen and you dip it in water or something like that and you go over the colors. It makes you think that you can actually color within the lines. Stuff like, I, I still use those sometimes. <laughs> yeah. All those things are, are really valuable. And then we'd put, um, we'd put a music tape in there, which means that if you have this music tape, this is back in the day of cassette tapes, and if you're not sure what a cassette tape is, you'll have to Google it. Um, we put a cassette tape in each of the backpacks, which means they're allowed at a certain time to say, Dad, play my, my cassette tape on the, uh, the stereo in the car because uh, they didn't all have Walkmans back in those days. Some of you even know what a Walkman is. And we would give them candy 
and snacks and little things like that, and we would give them money, and we'd put it all in their backpack. Now, the thing with the, the candy and the money is we explained to them, these are yours. You don't have to share them with anyone, and you can eat the candy whenever you want. That's up to you, and you can spend the money on anything that you want. You don't have to give account to us. This stuff is yours. Well, it's amazing how four kids growing up at the same time, growing up with two both wonderful parents, how they treat stuff so differently. One of our kids, by the time we're even out of the parking, uh, out of our parking lot, out of our garage there, they've already got half the candy eaten. I, I mean, this is a two-week road trip. And then we have one of our children. His thing is that at the end of the trip, he's still got candy left. And so, you know, one gets in there and really eats it and enjoys it. And the very first time I stop for gas, they're out there trying to spend their money. And some of the others are kind of doling it out. But that was a good lesson for them as they start understanding a little bit about the concept of stuff and how to measure it out. Do I want to spend it all at one time, or do I want to wait a little bit? But this leads me to understanding that there are two kinds of owners. And this is not going to be a surprise to you. There are those who spend it, and there are those who save it. And you might say, say that, oh yeah, I know which one I am. I'm a spender. And someone says, I'm, I'm, I'm a little of both. And, and, and to tell you the truth, chances are you're going to have a mix of this. But there are those who like to, as soon as they have something, I want to spend it. As soon as I have money, I want a car. As soon as I have money, I want, I want a PlayStation. As soon as I have money, I want to buy a house. I want to spend it on something. And then there are those who say, well, I'm going to save it. Something better will come along. Or I'm saving up for something big. I'm also amazed that when you have stuff, there are some people that use it up really well. I'm, I'm amazed that some guys, especially when we used to live on the prairies, they would buy a new $50,000 pickup. And within three months, it looks like it's 10 years old. The way they ride through the fields, the way they throw bales on and off, the way they treat it, never washing it. But there were also some fellows who had pickup trucks that once they had spent the money on, they didn't want anything to happen. You know what it's like when you get a new vehicle? You're, you're just terrified of that first scratch, that first dent, anything, and you want to preserve it. We had one fellow in one, one of the churches where I was a pastor he was proud. He put on about 4,000 kilometers a year on his Chrysler. He would drive downtown to see the doctor, and then he would drive over to the car wash to wash it in case any dirt got on it, and he would drive it to church on Sundays. So after about five or six years when he was selling his car, it looked still brand new. It still had that brand new smell in it. But there are two kinds of owners. But here's the beauty of ownership. It's yours. 
Whether you spend it or whether you save it, it's yours. You don't have to give account to anyone. That's your choice, right? When it belongs to you, nobody can say, well, you shouldn't be doing that. Because if it's yours, you are able to make that decision. But what do you do with things that are not yours? So what about things that you rent? Well, I'm afraid to think of what happens to vehicles and things like that, what we rent. But we're not going to talk about those things that we rent or those things that we lease or even those things that we borrow. But what we want to do is talk about those things that we are a steward of. So now the word steward is not one that we use very much. Uh, today, but the concept of a steward is this a steward manages the affairs or resources of someone else. So, all those things that doesn't belong to you, but as a steward, I manage them, I administrate them, I govern them. They're not mine, but I do it for someone else. So, I, I'm sort of in charge of it, but it's not mine. Another thing that a steward does is that he manages according to the stated purpose. So if you have $100,000, and someone would, of you would say, oh man, I wish. If you have $100,000 and you entrust it to a financial steward or a financial advisor, their goal is to uh, invest it according to your purposes. So if you're saying, I want to make the most money possible. I don't care what the risk is. I don't care um, about what type of investments. I don't care if it's in alcohol. I don't care if it's in drugs. I don't care if it's in selling weapons. I want to make the most money. So then they invest according to your purposes. But if you're saying, I want to make a decent return, but I'm also environmentally friendly, I also care about the kinds of things I invest in. So invest my money that way. So that financial advisor becomes your steward and they invest in according to what you say. If you say my risk tolerance is high or my risk tolerance is low, they adapt their investing of your money according to what you desire. The third thing is that a steward is accountable for how they manage your things. One day, that steward must give account. So whether they are looking after your stuff or your money or they are looking after a group of people where they are stewards in that way, they must give account. In some ways, you could say governments are that way. Governments become stewards for the people. We can't all get involved with managing our country. So the idea is that we, we vote on people, we get them to administer the country according to our purposes, and then we hold them accountable. Did they actually do that or did they not? And of course that becomes a very complicated thing along the way as many of you know. But that's what a steward is. Managing the things that belong to someone else. So you, we ask this question along the way, so then what is really mine? 
And some of you might say, what's mine? You know, I said, well, my life is mine, right? I, I, you know, I can, I can guide my own life. Uh, my energy, my time, my abilities, those are mine. My money, when I work and I make money, that's mine. My house is mine. Actually, part of it is mine. Part of it belongs to the bank. Uh, actually, the bank owns, you know, 80% of it, 70% of it, 60%. Hopefully, as time goes on, you own more and more of your house. But the bank gives you the privilege of paying the taxes and doing the repairs and, and living in it, right? So, so that's the kind of arrangement you have when you have a mortgage. Um, you say, my family is mine. Or you might say, the successes that I have, that's my successes, I work for them, I did the work, so therefore they're mine. And as you, you might wrestle with this a little bit, figuring out, so what is really mine? But in order to really wrestle that one through, you also have to figure this part out. Who has a claim over me? Am I really mine like am I a self-made person do I exist here completely independent of any other force or any other influence am I really the captain of my own life who do I belong to if we're talking about ownership now some of you like me when I was first thinking about this I had a little bit of a natural reaction to this. What do you mean, belong to? Yeah, I, I, nobody owns me. I'm my own person. And to tell you the truth, wrestling with this part of the equation is tricky. Because you start thinking about, does somebody really have a claim over me? Like, does someone actually have rights over me? Not, not just does someone want to influence me, but does someone have a right in my life? And to tell you the truth, some of us are a little insulted by a question like this. We react to it thinking that, no, nobody else has rights in my life. I have rights to my own body, my own thoughts, my own life, my own destiny. But the question is, does someone have rights over you. And you might think, well, my boss owns me between the hours of eight and five. You might think that. Or you might think that my community has a certain call on my life. I belong to the community that I live in. I'm part of it. I pay taxes into it. I get resources and help from it. I mean, I drive on the roads. I use the library. We get together at the community center. So, does the community have some claim over me? Some of you might think, well, there's parents. I, I mean, parents go through an awful lot to bring children into the world and to make sure they stay in this world and don't pass on to the next. We invest a lot in their safety. We invest a lot in their education and in their training. So do parents actually have a claim in my life? And at what point does that claim end or does it end some of you say well a spouse has a claim when you get married and you make a vow to each other 
that it's going to be you and no other. Your spouse has a claim in your life. In fact, Scripture tells us that our body is not our own, but our body even belongs to our spouse. You go, whoa. So when we're talking about ownership, this is a part that's very tricky to to work out in our life, is that even though I am responsible for the things I think and I say and do, there are people that have claims in my life. And how I allow those claims and how I live out those claims has everything to do with how I am a disciple. Of course, we think of the Creator, the Maker. We think of God who created us and who put you here on this earth. Does He have a claim in your life? In the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah, God was speaking to his people, the Israelites, who had made a covenant with God. They had made a covenant, which is similar to a marriage covenant. And the covenant was this, you will be our God and there will be no other. And God's commitment to them is, I will give you this land, these fields that you did not plant, these buildings that you did not make, I will give this to you, this promised land, and we will live. I will be your God, you will be my people, and you will be my witness to all nations. And that was the agreement. But like most people, like most of us, the nation of Israel had a very difficult time carrying their part of the covenant. And so... In the book of Isaiah, as God is warning them and trying to call them back, he says, it's it's like the clay saying to the potter, and a potter is someone who forms clay on a wheel. It's like the clay is trying to say to the potter, who are you that you made me with such clumsy hands? What are you doing? And then God's response is, do you not realize that I am the potter who made you? And made you for a purpose. So the question is, does God have a claim? And in Isaiah chapter 43 verse 1, God says this, Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. See, God lays claim in your life. And whether you recognize it or not, God is saying, you are mine. You belong to me. David spoke about it this way in Psalm 139. He says, in my mother's womb, you saw my unformed parts. Even before who I was became visible to anyone else, God saw me and he made me and he created me which speaks of purpose and intention. See, God created you the way you are now. He created you because he wanted you here. He wanted you in this world. He expects that you're going to contribute to this world. He expects that whatever difficulties you face, whether they're physical difficulties or economic difficulties or or, or, uh, spiritual difficulties, emotional difficulties, whatever they are, 
that you will be part of this world and you will live it in a certain way. Because that's the way he created you. That's why you are here. And God expects a certain connection with you. Whether you recognize it or not, he is your maker, your creator. Now there's an interesting term in the Old Testament that makes all of us a little bit uneasy. In Exodus chapter 20, as God is giving out the Ten Commandments to his people, he says this, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make a graven image. You shall not bow down to anything else or anyone else except me because I, the Lord your God, am a, what? A jealous God. You know the word. That God is a jealous God. Now some of us feel a little uncomfortable with that word. Anybody here feel a little uncomfortable with it? Yeah, it's true because it's that kind of word that when we think of jealousy, we usually think of the type of jealousy which involves envy. I want something that someone else has. If you're jealous of someone else's promotion, actually the right word is not jealousy, it's covetousness. There's a good Old Testament word for you covetousness you're coveting or you want what they have and you'd prefer that you took it away from them you it's not just that you want to be equal with what they have you want them not to have it and you want to have it instead that's covetousness and so sometimes when we think of jealousy we're really thinking of the word envy or covetousness when someone is jealous for another person We think, that person belongs to me, I want them, and I'm going to find a way to take them away from that other person. That's that ugly envy and jealousy, or really what it is, is covetousness. And and, And the Ten Commandments go on to say that, thou shalt not covet anything that belongs to someone else. So that kind of jealousy is not what the scriptures are telling us that God is like. When God says that I am a jealous God, he makes this picture like that of a marriage where we have two people who commit themselves to each other and say, it is going to be you and no other. And then anything that comes in to threaten that vow That person in jealous love will protect the relationship. So that when I see someone flirting with Renee, I mean, we've been married for 37 years, and as they say, while there's snow on the roof, there's still fire in the hearth. I have to admit, I get a little bit upset. I I have a sense of jealousy that starts stirring in me. I go, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's starting to threaten what we have. Or when I start being away too much and I'm never at home or I'm doing things that take me emotionally or take my mind away from our relationship, Renee starts getting a little bit jealous as in, wait a minute, wait a minute, what about us? 
See, that's the kind of jealousy that's very appropriate because it's based on love. It's based on a commitment that I actually want a relationship with you and anything that comes in to threaten that, I want to protect ourselves. So when God says that he has a jealous love for you, what he's really saying is that I value you so much that I hate anything that destroys our relationship. I hate anything that can come between us. I hate anything that might take us apart. It's that commitment to you. It's, you could say that he's highly desirous for a deep and transparent relationship with you. See, in God's mind, when he thinks about this relationship with you, he's not first thinking about the commands that you must keep. He's not first thinking about the kind of lifestyle you should live. He's first thinking about you. What kind of a relationship can he have with you? And he's jealous for you for a number of reasons. First, he's jealous of you because he created you. He made you. He wanted you here on this earth. And not only did he make you, like God made animals, he made trees, he made water, he made... While God created it all, he created you very uniquely. See, the Bible puts it this way, uses this term, that we are made in the image of God. God does not say that about anything else that he created. And in that way, humans are very unique. He created you in such a way that even though he is all-powerful, all-knowing, and he has the ability to create life, you were made in such a way that you'd be able to relate to him in a way that no other being can. Angels cannot. Animals cannot. They, they can all relate to God, but not in the same way that you are able to relate to God. And God planned you before you were even born. And in God's eyes, there are no mistakes for people being born. And even if you are born with certain disabilities, even if you are born with certain handicaps, even if you're born in countries that are economically desperate, God still wants you. And he wants you here. He made you, first of all, so that he can know you. God created you. And in that sense, he has a claim on your life. You may not realize this. In fact, you may even revolt against the idea that God has a claim on you. But God has that picture in his mind. I made you. You know, it came up in the news again in the last few weeks. Uh, Brian Adams appeared uh, with, before the Senate to talk about who owns music. Did some of you hear about that? Who owns music? And so that if you write a song and you sell it to someone, uh, you know, a developer, a record label, who owns that music? 
And right now it belongs to the record label for a certain amount of years. And they're trying to work that out. So who owns something that you creatively make is a big deal, isn't it? But you are God's song. Not only did he speak you into existence. I love the picture that he sang you into existence. You are his song, and he very much cares who you belong to. He invested and put himself into you. His thoughts, his dreams, his, his passions. If you could say that God dreams, you'd say that God was dreaming about all that you would do when he created you. All the good that you would do for others how you would change this sin-fallen world and what you would invest in it, even in just your own family, in your sphere of influence. And all of us has very small spheres of influence, but it matters to God. He created you, and therefore, he's got a claim on your life. He's got a claim on us because he daily cares for us. Not only did he create you and make you a one-time event, but he follows your progress all along the way. Scripture tells us that God makes the sun to shine and the rain to fall on both the godly and the ungodly, right? So even if you are living in rebellion of God, he has still created this world for you. He's still watching over you. He still makes your heart beat and your lungs suck air every step of the way. Whether you recognize God or not. And that's his mercy. Because in his mercy, he longs that one day you will recognize that he actually loves you. And that you belong to him. He continues to inspire your creativity. Your business acumen. Your ability to make the world better. He still inspires your love for people. Even if you do not recognize him as your creator, though you do not recognize him as having a claim, he still is at work in you. And it's interesting that David put it this way in Psalm 139. And to tell you the truth, Psalm 139 is one of those great passages, those great poems that talk about God's love and his investment in our lives. And David puts it this way. He says, how vast are your thoughts of me. They are more than the sands of the sea. But what that means is that God thinks about you so much. He thinks about you constantly that you can't even count how many times God thinks about you. Even if you don't think of him. God has a claim on your life because when you were lost to him, he purchased you. See, the thing is that because you are born as a human and God creates you, but often we choose a way that's away from God. And that way we use this word lost, which means you are lost from God. In fact, Scripture tells us that we are born that way because of our sin nature. 
but God's desire is to bring you back. And so when Jesus went to the cross, it was to pay a price to make it possible that you could come back to him. That's his passion. That's his joy. That when you were lost from him, that would not be the end of the story. But that you could be brought back. So it does not matter whether you know God or whether you don't know God. Whether you recognize him or don't recognize him. He still purchased you. He bought you with a price. First Peter puts it this way. You were not bought with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. He bought you. And that way he says, you belong to me because I paid for you. And that's following up on an Old Testament story, one that God did again with his people, Israel, who even though they were in the covenant, couldn't fulfill their side of the covenant. God speaks to this prophet called Hosea. And he says, Hosea, I'm going to use your life as a sermon to people. And Hosea, as a good prophet, says, okay, tell me what to do. He says, I want you to marry a lady who's unfaithful. I want you to marry a woman of the street. I want you to marry a prostitute. Wow, if God told me that, I'm not exactly sure what I would do. Thankfully, he hasn't told me that. But the idea of to marry someone you know is not planning to be faithful to you. So Hosea does it. He marries this woman, and according to who she is, shortly after they're married, she goes back to her former trade and becomes a prostitute again. Uh, she gets herself into financial trouble, indebtedness, and she cannot pay her bills. And the way it is in society at that time, if you've sold all that you have to pay your bills and you don't have enough money, then you sell yourself. You become indebted to a person. You become somebody else's servant, slave, property. That's the way they did it. So she sold herself because of her debts. Now God speaks to Hosea a second time. He said, Hosea, you know that woman you married? She's in debt. She sold herself. Now I want you to go and buy her. Pay her debt. And so Hosea does. And he says to her, now you have to live with me. First, we were husband and wife, and I have claim on your life. But now I purchased you and you belong to me a second time. And see, that's a story which rings true in our life because God created you and he has a claim on your life. But when Jesus went to the cross, he says, now you're mine again. You belong to me because of what I paid for you. But see, here's the thing, even though Christ pays for you, it's one of those things that you must embrace, that you must accept. And that's what we talk about, accepting Jesus, is that the purchase, the purchase has been made, the money has been laid down. It's kind of like when you go online and you pay money at the grocery store, I've ordered my groceries, now I have to go pick it up. It's been paid for. Salvation has been paid for. You just have to go now and pick it up. Accept it. 
And then Jesus has a claim on us because he lives in us. You see, when you accept Jesus in your heart, when you come to that place and you say, I want to take his salvation, this is not just adding Jesus to your life. And some of us, unfortunately, we, we come to Jesus in that way thinking that, well, all I have to do is pray a little prayer and then I'm safe in eternity, so I might as well just pray and add Jesus to my life and, you know, a little bit of extra security is never, ha- never harmful. Sometimes we think of it as like buying extra insurance. I may never need it, but just in case. But when we accept Jesus, it's not just adding Jesus to our life. What it is, it's a trade. I'm going to give you your life, and you give me yours. I give Christ my sin, He gives me his righteousness. I give him my ugliness and he does something beautiful within me. I give him my fallenness and he gives me new life. I give him the slavery of my mind and my soul and everything that I wrestle with and he gives me an internal freedom. But it's a trade. It's not like I have the ability now to hold on to my own life and say, I own my life. What it is is I say, you bought me with a price. I now belong to you. And it's a good trade. You know, Paul talked about it this way. Paul talked about it this way in, and in Galatians chapter 2, verse 22. Excuse me, let's back up. God speaks this way and he says, Do you not realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you? And he uses this word temple. That that's the place where God dwells. And he lives in you. And, and he was given to you by God. Do You do not belong to yourself. But God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God in your body. Then when you give your heart to Jesus, you no longer belong to yourself. Like he always had claims in your life. But when you give your heart to Christ, in a sense you're saying, I give up all claims now to the ownership of my own life. And that's why we use this term, did you accept him as Lord and Savior? Which means, did you give up claim in your life? Does God really have claim? We're not just talking about an easy kind of salvation where you just add Jesus to everything else. But we're talking about a complete trade. In fact, Paul saw it in this way. This is the way he words it. I've been crucified with Christ And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So he talks about it this way. I died with Christ. That old life, the old me, I gave it up for something better. And I now have a new life in Christ. And the way he words it, and you can say this is his personal philosophy, the life I now live in the body, 
I live in Christ. That he actually now lives through me. And it's not me. This is Christ's life. He has ultimate claim over me. And, that, and in that way, Paul would say, I am a steward of what God has given me. In order to, to receive Jesus, I have now become his servant. And he uses this. And oftentimes, the letters that Paul writes, he starts off with saying, Hi, I'm Paul, servant of God. The idea, or slave of God, is that he's, in his mind, it's very clear. I have given up the rights over my own life, and I have given them over to Christ, but in return, I have received so much. You know, this week, I was thinking about Roger and Carrie Liegman. Some of you who have been here for years know Roger. Roger grew up here from, a little, from just a little boy to become this big, strong, strapping young man. And God, while he was in our church, started speaking in his life and calling in his life. And Roger's response was, I give up my future for you. And so God called him to go and study, go to Bible college, seminary, to begin working, starting churches. A number of years ago, he started a church. We call it church planting. That's just church terminology because we expect it to grow and become, become something. So we call it church planting. He planted a church in Kelowna, and God is at work in blessing that. But this past spring and summer, Roger and Carrie were in a serious accident. And, uh, and this is a picture of the car. They had to use the jaws of life to uh, take the doors off and get Roger out. Uh, the, the vehicle, they were driving down uh, the connecting route from uh, Kelowna over to the, uh, to the other highway there and, and hit some water and hydroplane and the vehicle rolled, I think it was like four times. And as you could take a look at this car, Roger's no small fella and he doesn't really fit in that space very well. And uh, it's amazing that Roger and Carrie even lived. Uh, Carrie was seriously hurt, but she has recovered uh, better than Roger has. Roger is still uh, <laughs> trying to recover. And uh, he's had all kinds of pieces of metal put in his neck and his arm and everything. But I was touched this week by an email that Carrie sent as she described the situation and where they are. She says this, It's only by the grace of God that we remain present on earth right now. And that is the truth. For everyone that was a witness to the accident uh, cannot believe that we survived it. And this gives us much excitement that the Lord has great things yet in store here and, and that are still to be done in His great name. Really, I believe this to be true. And so, and this is the part that stands out to me. And so, we pour ourselves out all the more for the sake of the one who gave us everything. He's worthy of it all. And he's with us and for us. What do we have to fear? As I read the words that Carrie emailed about Roger and their accident, 
And I'm sure she must at times struggle with the purpose of it all and why it happened and how it affects them and their future. But the very fact that her desire and Roger's desire is to keep pouring themselves out even more because there is someone who has a claim on their life. And they've recognized that claim. And even though that claim might take them to dark spaces, it might require much more of them than they ever expected. They recognize that he is our king. He's the owner of me. And all that I have, my time, my health, my energy, my future, I am only a steward of that. I'm an administrator. And I use it only for God's purposes. You know, as you wrestle with this, and as I have also been wrestling with this, God's claim in your life is not to harm you or to hurt you or to just use you up and throw you away. But his passion is to know you dearly, is to have that close, intimate, transparent relationship with you. That you were created for that kind of a relationship with him. And he's jealous for you. Anything that might come in the way, he's jealous about that. Because he wants you. You are mine. I pray that this week you will wrestle with this. What does it mean when God calls me his? Am I willing to let him say, you are mine. You belong to me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus' love. What you invest in our lives. How you gave yourself to buy us. People that you had already created, but you wanted us even more. And Father, as we wrestle with what is mine and how we are to be stewards of all that you give us, help us to make this priority right first, to know that you are mine and I am yours. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you please stand and join us?